wonderful professionals. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hello, my name's Anna, um, and I'm joined actually by my dad here, Peter. So I'm a junior, junior doctor. I've just graduated from, well, graduated from Leeds University, and I've done my F1 and F2 years, and then developed an interest in anesthesia and intensive care. So I've just finished a year on ICU in Leeds. So I've done a total of three years of doctoring, and my dad here has actually done 43. So dad, who are you? Uh, yes, good afternoon. I'm uh, Peter Littlejohns. I'm Professor of Public Health at King's College London. Um, and for 12 years, from 1999 to 2012, um, I was the founding clinical and public health director of Know Is Nice. Um, I was, was one of the executive directors and developed the, the guidance programs NHS over the last uh, 24 years. So yeah, hopefully between us, um, knowing that we're quite different people, we might have very different answers or hopefully uh, give a balanced answer to, to the questions you're going to Perfect. Thank you, guys. So what does an average day at work look like for both of you? Um, I, I will start because being a public health doctor, I have a very different perspective. Um, I don't see patients. Um, I address the health and welfare of whole populations. So my average day is divided into three, really. The first is undertaking research, designing uh, systems and projects to improve the health, and, uh, in, increase the prevention of disease. Um, I'm, my afternoons is spent teaching, and I have undergraduate and postgraduate programs. Um, I, I teach students, um, but also design new public health programs. Um, and then um, governments and local authorities on, on how best to uh, enhance the population's health. I'm not sure I've really got an average day at the moment, because I'm not really having an average year. I'm actually taking a, yeah. a year out of training. Um, to develop some of my global health interests. So on Monday, I start the Diploma of Tropical Medicine um, at Liverpool. So that's a course for people that want to work overseas, mainly in tropical climates. Um, and it's a compulsory uh, qualification for working for organizations like Medicine Sans Frontieres. So I'll actually be going back to university to study as a student from Monday. And then actually from December time, I'm hoping to be in Uganda working um, on a trial out there looking at um, COVID and CPAP in their ICU. So not an average NHS year, but then I will actually apply for anaesthetics and hopefully come back to more regular NHS training from next year. So I'm sure COVID has had a massive impact on both of your working lives then, uh, in different ways, of course, but still uh, completely shifted the way you, the way you look at uh, your job and uh, how you can travel, et cetera. Yeah, yes, you're right. I mean, COVID has affected everybody globally, and we're all potential patients as, as, as well as doctors and carers. Um, my, my main concern, though, as a public health doctor is to ensure that all those patients, because just because COVID has happened, all those patients with other diseases, heart disease, diabetes, they still deserve and expect the best care. So much of my time is spent trying to develop systems to ensure that those patients um, who haven't got COVID still have access to care and can still feel confident that the NHS is going to address their, uh, their issues and their illnesses. 
So I think my my daily life has changed on a slightly different scale to that. I mean, I joined my first year in intensive care was was during the pandemic, which I think was quite an interesting, quite a spicy time to join ICU. So it was pretty, pretty COVID heavy day in, day yeah. out, really. So do you, uh, either of you, have another career path that you uh, would have taken if not gone down the scientific medical route? Right. Well, I think I should start um, with that. And um, it's interesting that my, my first love was actually to, to or desire was becoming architect. My, um, my favorite subjects were geometry and art. So the combination of those seemed to be the, the ideal um, architecture and being an architect seemed to be the, the ideal career. But um, being in a Welsh grammar school back in the, the 1970s, um, there were no role models for, for architects. The, the role models were for the professions, medicine law. So, so I went into medicine, um, but funny enough, I've ended up um, actually being more of an architect than a clinical doctor because my main aim and, and responsibilities have been about building institutions. I've mentioned NICE, but I have other uh, international research collaborations that have established another research units. So while I haven't built buildings, um, I have built institutions that have enhanced the the, uh, the healthcare system in a number of countries. So I think I, I feel quite satisfied that I, I made the right decision in the end. No, there was nothing else I ever wanted to do. Nothing else I would have thought of now. So no, it's it's a no from me. I mean, if I daydreamed, I sometimes wanted to be a tennis player, but I don't think I'm anywhere near good enough at tennis <laughs> to make that happen. So what do you uh, both think will be, uh, well, predict will be the biggest issues for the next generation of doctors? I think it's that just demand is, is just rising and rising. And that's demand at every level. So every specialty, every discipline within health, social care, community medicine, hospital medicine, demand is just going up. There are more patients, more complex patients, more treatments, more diagnostic techniques, more like advances in everything just means there's uh, just an increased burden on people's time and resources. So I think as the demand goes up, that's going to have to be dealt with, you know, sort of, sort of managerial and political levels, but also down on the individual doctors and practitioners. I think it will just be how you balance, how you meet that demand um, that, that's just yeah. going to carry on rising. And that's what I see is going to be a bit of a, a bit of a challenge in the future that every specialty and every discipline are going to have to address. I, I, I agree. Um, I, I think there are two other aspects perhaps I, I would also emphasise is that because of the, the capacity to intervene with high-tech high interventions, um, there is a tendency to, to, to concentrate on the, on the technology where many patients also want, obviously they want to write the correct diagnosis and the right treatment, but they also want comfort and, and, and empathy from the doctors. So trying to balance that, that in, intensive, um, technologically driven approach with human kindness and human understanding is, is going to be key to being a, a good doctor in the future. The, the other aspect is that we can't do everything. Um, we have to prioritize and you have to prioritize in a way that people understand uh, is fair, um, is consistent, um, and allows you to, to live within your resources and, and not to um, 
develop techniques for one group of patients where other group of patients are missing out. So, Anna, you've obviously taken a, a medical path. Do you think that was influenced by your dad or do you think that uh, you just chose that on your own and you would have done anyway? Well, um, so actually, I think I was pretty challenged by my dad when I uh, first said I wanted to do medicine. I don't right. think I'd go as far as saying he put me off, but he definitely made me made sure it was my decision and made me think. Um, and I think he didn't want me to go into it naively or just following in his his footsteps. So uh, I think I had to. Uh, yeah, he definitely challenged me to make sure it was my own decision. So what are the most challenging aspects of both of your jobs right now? And I know you're obviously going into a completely different stepping stone. Uh, so you're probably going to face a lot, a lot of new challenges, but perhaps so far. Um, I, I think I'll, I'll start um, with my, my greatest challenge, really, is interaction with policymakers at the national level. Um, their, um, their remit, they, they have their priorities. Um, but increasingly, we now understand that you have to base those policies on the best evidence. Uh, they have to be research-based. Um, and I, I don't mean research in the narrow sense here of clinical trials. I mean in broader sociological perspective. Um, but, but that's difficult um, because at the end of the day, it's the politicians to make the final decisions. And we've seen that throughout COVID. But um, I, I think I've been reassured that the, the, the scientists, the chief medical officer, the chief scientific officer, have been there and, and, and shared the debate. And we now know that there's a whole range of specialist committees that are providing guidance to the ministers. Um, but at the end of the day, the ministers make decisions, but that's probably the most difficult, balancing uh, the science and the, the, the nature of, of, of policy making. Do you think when dealing with these scientific problems that it should be in the scientists' hands the people who know most about the subject to make the decision and perhaps not the minister? No, no, I don't. I, I think ministers, we, we, we live in a democracy. Um, ministers uh, are appointed by the people to act on their behalf. Um, and however good the research is, there, there's no one right answer. It's a different, it's, it's a balance of risks. And so at the end of the day, it, it has to be a democratic process. Um, and we saw that with yep. SAGE, the, the government's uh, advisory committee at the beginning of COVID, um, it was, its membership was not published, its minutes were not published, um, the evidence on which they made their decisions weren't published. Now, all that is in the public domain. So um, everybody can understand, they may not agree with the final decisions, um, but they do understand how those decisions are made. Um, and I think that's how it should be. And indeed, uh, Chris Whitty, Chief Medical Officer, and Patrick Valance, Chief Scientific Officer, are very clear about that. Um, very clear that you know, the evidence takes you so far, but the decision is, is one that has to be a democratic process. Yeah. And Anna, uh, any uh, challenging aspects of your job that you've faced so far? I think as a newly qualified doctor, I found it's just about getting the balance right between work and life, adapting to a new role. It's a job, whatever we've done in medical school, it's a job like you've never done anything like it before. It's a whole new world. It's, but it's just about getting that, that balance right um, as you start in work. And then I'll see what, what else is to come in the years ahead, I think. So what drew you to uh, where you're going in your medical career uh, 
was it at the start of uh, med school or perhaps later on? Because it's really interesting uh, where, where you're going and what you're doing. Yeah, so during medical school and, and my first year of work, I was actually always interested in oncology. Um, and so when I got to choose different components at medical school and things like that, I always chose ones with a cancer focus. Um, and then I actually went to my advanced life support and there was a key moment that I think drew me to ICU. So I went to my advanced life support, which is a, where you learn about resuscitating patients. And there was a particularly friendly intensive care consultant. And at the end of the two day course, he just said, oh, Anna, have you considered a career in intensive care medicine? And I very honestly, and hopefully politely said no. Um, I was quite happy with my plan to do oncology. Um, and actually I'd had quite um, a difficult time We're on the intensive care placement at university. I found it a bit overwhelming. Right. I didn't really understand what was going on. And I was quite, I think, intimidated by, by the whole intensive care unit. So yeah, I told him quite honestly that um, I didn't really think, think it was for me. And I did have two housemates at the time who were thinking about anaesthetics and intensive care. So it was, it was definitely, I was thinking about it and I, and I was thinking, no, quite honestly. But then he must have he planted that seed because over the next few days, I started thinking about it more. I got in touch with him again and said, oh, you, you have made me think here. And I came and did a few days shadowing him. They're called taster days on his, on his right. unit in Leeds. Um, and I just loved it. I had a few days in theatre, a few days on intensive care, and I just loved it. I loved the approach they took to the patients. It was really thorough and it made sense to me. I loved the whole team going around together. I loved the variety of patients, you know, ages, disease type, acuity. I, I just loved all of it. And then I applied and have done this now a whole year on the same uh, intensive care unit. And yeah, absolutely think it's it's what I want to do. So it definitely wasn't at the start of med school, but it was a uh, thank you to, to Dr. Powell, and clearly a particularly influential uh, intensive care consultant that's really uh, started this started this off for me. That's great. Very interesting what Anna says, because I think it raises a, a, a number of key issues. The, many times um, people feel that they know which career they want, but they hadn't realized the breadth of experience and, and opportunities there is within you know, the healthcare field. Um, and you can be influenced um, by a, an inspiration leader. Um, I remember my decision. I was at the Royal Postgraduate Medical School um, destined for a career in respiratory medicine when um, following right. a ward round, I was asked about my, my career by my um, senior doctor. And he said, well, well, Peter, you must remember that healthcare is going in two directions. We, we, it's going to get bigger and bigger in terms of healthcare systems, epidemiology, or smaller and smaller. And the genetics of individuals and disease. So you have to make a decision. Um, having done an integrated BSc in human genetics, I realized though it was a good subject, it wasn't one that went big and, and, and trained as an epidemiologist. Different stories, but the same influence with your experience and, and, and following uh, inspiration leaders. I think it's so interesting how you had a passion for architecture uh, before medicine, and then you kind of, uh, you found that niche uh, within medicine. So I know you said uh, the reasons for not going into architecture were because you perhaps didn't have a role model. What drew you to medicine initially? Um, I, I think I it was the it was the combination of of 
of the the science of medicine and and, and the art of medicine. Um, I, I I though I, I enjoyed art and geometry. Um, I the sciences were were very. I was very strong in the sciences. Um, but but also um, I had a lot of exposure to illness within my family over the years, and so I I, I had a, an intimate understanding of how doctors worked, of how hospitals worked, um, and I saw many good doctors um, their daily work, and, and I think that that inspired me. Um, I, I don't regret architecture at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, have there been any particular highlights of your career so far? There have been many, <laughs> um, but that's I'm sure one that that's probably me the most was um, I was fortunate about the um, appointed a, a Rockefeller academic resident um, in their academic retreat on the uh, peninsula um, on the Lake Como in, in, in Italy. Um, and, and the Rockefeller Foundation is has been established to try and enhance the well-being of, of, of people throughout. And they do this by bringing academics, scientists, not just medics, um, any form of scientist, uh, artists, musicians, authors, writers, practitioners together for three months to wow. on a project. And, and, and I was writing a book at the time. Um, but it was just amazing to every day um, be challenged by authors from Africa. Um, musicians from um, you know, Eastern Europe um, and filmmakers from Brazil. So we, we were just brought together as a group for three months and we were just challenged um, constantly by very eloquent, um, intelligent people from around the world. They got me to change my idea. I didn't write. Amazing, amazing. So, Anna, have there been any particular highlights for you? Yeah, um, I think this my past year on ICU has been has been my highlight. Just finding a specialty that that I think I've really fallen in love with, and we've decided that it's it's what I want to do for the rest of my career. I just think that's been that's been quite special, and I think being able to enjoy it in a year like we've just had means quite a lot. And if there was like one actual real highlight, I'm not sure how you say this correctly, but I got to ride in an ambulance for the first time. <laughs> I got to accompany <laughs> one of the senior registrars, do a transfer of a patient from one ICU to another. Um, and it was just pretty fun riding in an ambulance. <laughs> yeah. So if you could both give one piece of advice to an aspiring medical student, what would it be? So be happy, work hard. It's the motto of my boyfriend's primary school, um, but I think it works really well for everybody um, at every stage. We often say it to each other when we leave the house in the morning, so that's my advice to everybody. Be happy, work hard. I think my, my advice would be um, that 
everybody goes into medicine with slightly different um, reasons for, for different reasons. Um, and um, but to be open, um, I, I can remember when I went into medicine, I, I felt I knew what I wanted to do um, afterwards, which was completely different to, to what I actually ended up doing. Um, and there is a tendency to you have a, 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 an array of, of lectures from from all different specialties now and there is a tendency if you're not careful to concentrate on the ones that you think are going to benefit you in your career and, and not the others and I, I would strongly advise you know people joining medicine for the first time to be open to all the the subjects and and, and keep right. an open mind because um there's so much to 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 understand and learn in the first few years um and i know you have to prioritize you know you can't do everything as well as you would like you know you have to prioritize but but just keep that your, your mind open because the, there is so many opportunities now in, in modern medicine um and some of you you know may well have, have not even been developed yet i mean they, they, they'll be emerging over the next five years so so just keep an open mind and, and not be too too targeted I 100% agree. I think I originally went into uh, a sort of medicine with the with, with an idea of neurology. Uh, I've recently done a bit of uh, research on it, and I think you just need to go into it, like you say, with a completely open mind, and you'll get so many different experiences uh, through med, med through med school, uh, like going in an ambulance, for example, and you get to you get to know what you want through experience. Great. So if you guys were to go and approach medicine again. With all your knowledge now, how would you change your approach to it? I'm, I, I, I wouldn't change it at all, actually. Um, no, me yeah. neither. <laughs> Great. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I certainly, I, I suppose the, the reason I'm hesitating is that I had so many plans and none of them worked out, <laughs> um, but they all turned out to be um, better decisions and, and and better opportunities. So so I, I think you 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 obviously have to have a degree of planning in 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 your career. And um, one of the things perhaps we haven't emphasised is that I mean medicine is a pretty um, all encompassing career opportunity and responsibility. But you have to you know balance that with the rest of your life. Um, not just for your individual benefit, but for your patient's benefit. They, they expect you to understand what living a normal life is, as well as being treated for their disease. Um, and you can only do that by actually having a balanced life yourself. Yep. So what do you think are the right and wrong reasons for wanting to go into medicine? I think when choosing to go into medicine and applying for medical school, which is a pretty big, big application to make, make in sick form, you just need to be as informed as possible. So that's trying to understand as much as you can what life is like um, as a doctor. I mean, I'm still, I'm still finding that out, but what it is like day to day. Um, and I think if you if you like the, the good points of it, and there are lots of highs in a career, if you like the team working, if you like the um, sort of the actual scientific side of it, if you like the more caring humanitarian side, if, if you think that suits you, but you know what the, what the challenges are, you, you are aware 
what you're signing up for in terms of the emotional toll, the high levels of responsibility you have to take that are different to many other disciplines, um, you know, like the working Christmases and all that people say, I mean, it does take a big toll on your on your life outside work um, um, and your general quality of life. So if you go into it right. informed of what all the good things are, but also really knowing what what the challenges can be. And if you're, if you think you, if you think that still is then a good choice for you, then I think that that's the right reason to go into it, which so conversely, the wrong reason is if you're going in not as aware as you could be of what, what life is like. So I think a podcast like this is fantastic. It's, that's how you get experience from other people um, and see what, what other people have to say about it. And I know work experience has been challenging this year because that was, that was how I got my first taste of it. And I saw that actually, yeah, I do think this does look really interesting. I saw some of the drawbacks, not all of it, but I thought that sort of I would be prepared to be able to deal with some of that. So yeah, just be as right. informed as you can be. And if you still think it's a good idea, once you've heard people be honest, then you've really taken on board sort of the negative sides of it. If you're still keen then, then I think go go for it. It's wonderful. But if you're if you're if you're not sure and if you're honest with yourself and you think it doesn't sound right for you, then that's there are so many other things that I'm sure would work out better. Yeah, it's a really good point. I, I, I don't think I've got anything to add, really. Um, I, I suppose the, the only other point is that you people would need to be open-minded and, and willing to change and adapt. Um, over my four decades, I've seen medicine change dramatically. And, and, and one of the biggest changes, perhaps, is that the move towards teamwork, multidisciplinary teamwork. Um, so. If, if you're not a team player, um, then, then modern medicine probably isn't something that you should consider. Um, if you're in, uh, totally uh, individualistic in your, your approach and um, aspirations, then, then perhaps you need to think twice. So moving on from that point, um, how do you see the chapter, the practice of medicine changing in the future, along with uh, more teamwork, multi multidisciplinary teams? How else? Well, I, I think, I mean, Alan's covered it perhaps a bit in the previous questions that there's going to be so much, you know, people are living longer, they're having multiple diseases, um, their expectations are high, the, the scientists are delivering on interventions. So there, there will be an issue of prioritizing, fair prioritization of what's um, uh, available and, and how it can be delivered to the patients. Um, but there, there are two other issues that are sort of hidden behind that, that comment. The first is that um, if we're not careful, the inequalities that we have in health are going to get worse. I mean, COVID, if it has done um, something good, it, it identified that the inequalities are there and, and we need to address them. Um, and they're not going to be addressed without policymakers, doctors, patients, all working together to address that. The, the other, and, and I suppose rather depressing question is, um, answer is that um, we're going to extend life, we're going to extend the quality of life, maybe with a degree of disability, um, but we're not going to cure people, we're not going to make people immortal. There is always going to be death at the end of the journey. And right. And making that an acceptable process, um, both for the individual patient 
and the family, the carers, and indeed the professionals. And it's something as a society we need to, to address. The, the emphasis at the moment is on how much we can do for patients, but you know, we can't do everything. And, and so in, in, in the palliative care world, they talk about a good death. Um, and, and I think that's something that, that as a society and as a profession, um, we will need to address and, and will be increasingly an issue, um, certainly for developed uh, healthcare systems like we have in the United Kingdom. I think that's a really good point that I haven't thought of, actually. I think mental health, uh, going back right the way back from the beginnings of medicine when it was completely dismissed, has just completely grown as something to be made aware of and something that can be treated. And so definitely becoming comfortable with death will be the next hurdle to accomplish. And when you talk about inequality in medicine, what would you say is the, the biggest areas of inequality? Where is it found? Well, um, as, a, as a public health physician, I would say this, but um, it's not within the healthcare system. It, it's the society, both the physical um, and the, the social and economic environment. So we need to obviously um, put money into the healthcare system, but we also need to look at the infrastructure, uh, housing, roads, education, uh, particularly schools. Um, so many of our diseases are preventable through um, healthy lifestyle choices. But um, if you haven't got the green area to exercise in, there's no point in telling people to exercise more. They need safe uh, environments, not only from uh, physical uh, difficulties, but, but also um, atmospheric. And, and obviously, there have been big discussions around uh, air pollution in, in, in the cities over, over the last few years. So do you both consider medicine to be a vocation? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and could I quickly Nothing. interject and just, um, I'll, sorry, I'll just ask, what's your dad's name? Just so I can properly ask. Um, it's Professor Peter Littlejohns. Perfect, thank you. Peter, were you going to say something? No, no, um, I was just going to totally agree with my daughter. <laughs> novel. <laughs> and another question is, do you both love what you do? It's the same answer to me, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. We've, we've, we've highlighted the challenges and the... Um, and the difficulties, but but we we, I mean I've got forty more years experience than my daughter in healthcare, and and I, I remain as enthusiastic now as I did um, forty years ago. Um, it's changed, um, it's, it will continue to be challenging, and um, but it's it's enormously rewarding being able to um, apply your scientific knowledge and and your your caring skills, and um, be it at an individual clinical level or at a population level. Um, to enhance people's um, health and well-being is, is, is an enormous privilege. My registrar, when I was a junior doctor, said that um, I was a junior doctor during the first doctor's strike. Um, and there were big debates about you know, what the role of the doctor was and, and their responsibilities. And I remember him saying that being a doctor is a privilege. Um, and, and that has stood with me um, ever since. So when dealing with uh, dilemmas, uh, when the course of action isn't clear cut, 
Um, how would you, perhaps with uh, allocating resources, how would you go about making a decision? Well, from from a more, from, well, from my point of view as a, as a junior, luckily those, those decisions <laughs> aren't my responsibility. That is why right. you have supervision and a hierarchy in medicine. So um, for all those decisions, it, it's my answer is to ask a boss. Um, and, it, and they're called senior decision makers because that's that's what their experience um, can build up to being able to make those difficult decisions. So for me now, it's just it's just escalated to a boss. <laughs> I mean, from, from from my point of view, they they are difficult decisions and and they're 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 life and death decisions. Um, the the sort of work that that Anne is doing, those decisions have to be made in seconds and minutes. You know when you make decisions, or they may take longer decisions about who should go onto a ventilator, who should go into ITU. Um, my experience at NICE was looking at which drugs should be available on the NHS, and knowing that if a drug wasn't available, then a patient would suffer. I, I, I think there are two things. One, you need uh, a process that is um, robust, open, transparent, uh, challengeable. Um, and so that people can um, understand how those decisions are made. They also need to understand that you have taken the values, uh, societal values that they uh, aspire to and governments aspire to, countries aspire to, are taking into account. So it's, it's balancing um, those, you know, the value for the individual against the valued society. But the important thing is that people shouldn't be left to make these decisions themselves. They shouldn't be one o'clock in the morning having to make a decision. There should be systems in place. And, and there are. I mean, all hospitals will have bioethical uh, and ethics committees. They will have systems in place to ensure that if somebody has got a difficult decision, they can um, either address guidelines that have been developed or uh, preferably that they can contact somebody who is, has a special interest in bioethical difficult decision making um, and, and do that. And indeed, one of my early roles um, in as a public health doctor in COVID was to set up such a system so that GPs who had difficult bioethical decisions to make didn't have to do them on their own. They could phone somebody up 24-7 uh, right. um, and get a response. Because I think that's one of the most, well, for me, it would be anyway, uh, the most challenging things about uh, being in medicine is dealing with uh, the fact that you might have made a, made a decision that wouldn't have been the best course of action looking back on it uh, and just dealing with uh, maybe the threats of that. So if you've ever felt like that, how, how would you deal with the, with the feelings of regret? Very, very important issue. Um, I think doctors are humans. Doctors um, are developing their knowledge and their skills and, and, and mistakes will always be made. Um, Surprisingly, though, it is often not the individual doctor that makes the mistake. It's the system that they're working in. And the system has been created in a way that, that doesn't enhance the decision making. So the, the result is that individuals, um, and, and there are many systems now in place in the UK and elsewhere, need to be open about the, the mistakes they've, they think they've made. They may not have made a mistake. Um, and those then go into a, a process of audit and assessment so that lessons can be learned. Um, and so that the um, other professionals um, will be put into the same position. 
Um, but it's very difficult. Um, uh, you know, we, we often hear of, of people wanting to hide their mistakes. Um, but, but what we now call a learning healthcare system means that you encourage people to identify um, things like near misses or, or where there's been difficulties. Um, and I think there is an understanding now that um, systems can improve and, and doctors can improve, but um, it has to be in a safe environment. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have the litigious um, legal environment that, for example, they have in the States, but, but, but it, it's right. still there. Um, and it, it's one that, that is constantly challenging individual doctors, but particularly healthcare systems. Um, and, and I've, in my time, I've seen about five national institutions that have been developed to, uh, to respond to the issues that you've just raised. And, and they've all worked for a bit and then they've changed. Um, and, and so even, you know, it's, it's a difficult issue. And, and, but the only way around it is to be open, transparent and, and have that debate. Um, and to be honest with the patients, I mean, I, I've been involved in a number of issues that have gone to um, you know, judicial reviews and legal issues. And often patients and their relatives all they wanted was to understand what happened. Um, they can empathize with the doctor, um, but what they get is, is, is a secrecy that they get um, the, the, the managerial systems in the hospital tend to, to be too cautious and closed down. Um, and that then triggers, obviously, people, uh, patients, relatives, the, the, the relatives of the patient that perhaps had the adverse event or died um, that triggers them to, to, to want to find out. And you know that we see that so often in the papers. It's actually patients that have delivered and, and yep. challenged the system to change rather than the professional itself. But thinking about it on a more day-to-day -day basis, just dealing with um, sort of the emotional toll of, of the job, and not even if anything's gone particularly particularly badly, just the general um, emotional burden yeah, you carry. I think it's about developing just a good um, um developing your hobbies and having a fun life outside of medicine as as I think we've said medicine obviously takes up a huge part of your life huge part of your week weekend but you've just got to fill the rest of your time with, with things that, that that make you happy um and keep you healthy so um having something to come home to that you look forward to at the end of a day um is really important for me, it's, it's always been sport and exercise and whatever kind right. of day you've had, running around a hockey pitch, that just clears your head head immediately. I mean, obviously, if there are more serious things, there are obviously people to talk to, debrief with your colleagues formally or informally, but just keeping up those networks of friends and those hobbies outside of outside of your work, I just think is is so important. And it's what keeps you, what keeps you happy, what keeps you ticking over. And I think that's... Um, the main point I want to emphasise, just keep up during medical school and beyond, um, find new hobbies, keep up with your old hobbies, just that you've got, um, you've got things that bring you joy. Yeah, you could definitely can't dismiss things like that because they can become the biggest things that, you know, just wear release for you. Uh, and mm. also following mm. on the, from, from the point of um, medical services and institutions, what would you say is, I know it's hard to weigh them up, but the best, uh, medical kind of structure framework that, that you've seen in the world so perhaps uh, looking at America versus England the NHS yeah I mean we 
everyone in the coffee room, everyone loves to complain about the NHS and rotors and everything, but really it's, we're, we're a big fan club for the NHS. It is the most wonderful yeah. thing. We, I mean, everyone nearly has benefited from it from just being born to, to whatever else happens throughout your life. So it is, <laughs> I mean, without a pun, we couldn't live without it. <laughs> but I would completely and, and agree. From, an objective, from an objective point of view, there have been many comparative studies with, with healthcare systems across the world and, West, and particularly comparing Western Europe. And I know there are, there are debates around whether um, mortality rates in, in some cancers are higher in some Western European countries rather than others. But overall, the, the NHS has delivered a very good, efficient healthcare system. Um, it's, it's under enormous challenge now, um, as all other healthcare systems. So I don't think we'd be complacent. Um, but I think um, that there are, you know, it stood the test of time um, and, and it's adapted constantly when there's been new challenges as we've seen from COVID. Um, so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't throw out the NHS just yet. <laughs> I completely agree. And so I've got one last question for you both. And uh, it's, if you could pick any superpower, doesn't have to be related to medicine, what would it be? Well, I, it's a bit challenging, but, but it'd be really nice to read people's minds and know what right. they were really thinking about. I think that sounds hugely stressful and I wouldn't, wouldn't want that at all. Um, <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. It's what, sorry? Yeah. Ignorance yeah. is bliss, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to go with time travel. Yep. <laughs> that's great thank you both so much for giving up your time um i know you guys are in france as well so it's been it's been great to hear from you uh especially both of you uh giving very different insights but equally useful uh on medicine and i'm sure it helped someone else thank you thank you for having the dad daughter double act on best of luck it's been amazing to all aspiring medical students listening, good luck. I'm sure, I'm sure you'll do well.